<sighs> so this is ladies' hour, you know. Oh, okay. It's like ladies' night. What, what's it called when the ladies like get a free drink or whatever, or get the oh, microphone? Yeah. Oh, ladies' or, or night. Whatever. What? Yeah, ladies' so night. Where, where are they? So I'm here to attend to your needs, as the cool. humble podcast host. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm just I'm just the platform. But you, it's the stage is yours. So you tell me where we're going. Oh, you don't even I, tell me. Surprise me. Last time I came with with talking points, and I asked you for feedback. You're like, don't do talking points. So I came with nothing. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Great. What did you guys talk about last time? Oh, that was like t- almost two years ago now, and I was sort of explaining third factor and the theory of positive okay. disintegration. And I I love that that Benjamin was like, I don't know about this. Which is great. <laughs> People don't do that, you know? They don't tell you, like, I'm not sure I'm following this. Positive disintegration. Did you, yeah. uh, have you done all the disintegrating? Are you still doing that? Um, well, that's a good question. We don't, we, we can't go there. We don't have to. Let's go, let's um, go there. <laughs> okay. Do you know what it is, Eliza? No, I know I know about Third Factor magazine and I've listened to and read a lot of Jesse's stuff, but I don't I don't think I know positive disintegration. Okay. It's it's the the theory that the magazine's founded on. Um it's kind of esoteric, you know, very much a niche thing, but the the, the gist of it is that you are but how do we put it? Um, being maladjusted to a sick society. It's that quote that goes around, right? Like, yeah, it's yeah. not your fault. And it's kind of a theory that this guy, Kazmierz Dombrowski, came up with. And it explains the trajectory of a certain type of person. Got adopted by gifted education, which is why I also write about giftedness and that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, it's the process of people going through a positive disintegration, realizing they're maladjusted to a sick society. And for me... The gender issue came, it followed from that, that I'm not as interested in that per se. I, I've been thinking of it lately as an iceberg. And the gender mm-hmm. issue is just the tip of the iceberg that everyone can point to and be like, whoa, don't run into that. But by the time you see it, you're really close to the part under the surface, which mm-hmm. can manifest in so many other ways. That's what I would describe as my the reason I, I talk about positive disintegration. There's there's a lot you can you can dig into a lot with that, as you might imagine. Yeah, um, so I, I had a conversation, well, I hosted a conversation between two very talkative gentlemen. Uh, one's name's Wokal Distance, and the other's the Dave Green, the distributist, and they're both intellectuals. Mm-hmm. They talk a lot about, well, they spoke about postmodernism and um, cultural matters, and they both started from the premise, well, I, well, Dave was more, Dave drilled down into it more, and Wokal's more... Um, about the intellectual tradition leading us to the present moment, which some people call woke. But if you examine all these different cultural war issues, it's all kind of like there's a pattern there going on in in this kind of disintegration of society and this kind of uh, upheaval of norms or the loss of any sort of norms. But Dave said, he, he asserted that this all comes from our society's loss uh, lost connection to the divine, right? It, it's all about mm-hmm. us losing our Christianity and we're living in the hollow. So we grew up with all these values that had, well, we, our civilization developed these values over centuries and over the course of the last couple hundred years, 300 years, 
those norms were kind of loosened up and then technology rapidly advanced. So there's all this advancement, but also this disconnection from this kind of transcendent principle. So anyways, I bring that up because if you start to say, okay, the gender is a part of a bigger issue, one one narrative is that we lost our faith in God, whatever that mm-hmm. means. Everybody's got a different take on that. So I want to open that up to when you look beyond, when you look, when you peek in you, Eliza, you've, d- you've done so much work on gender and the female psychology. Like when you, when you look beyond, like, mm-hmm. what's this a symptom of? Like, what do you start to think it comes from this sick society or this problem that you see? Both of you, I'm open. That yeah. I mean, I think loss of meaning is a huge one. And that, I mean, this is something that Lisa Marciano and I talked about the last time that we were on with you, Ben. Um, Mm. It was like, especially when you're having a hard time and you're suffering, suffering that is without meaning is almost unbearable. And I think that the gender stuff in particular is an effort to give meaning to what we used to understand to be some pretty common forms of especially adolescent suffering. Um, but also, I mean, it's just become kind of the idiom that it's become an increasingly general purpose idiom for people who are having a hard time in life and are wanting the things that everybody wants and they're having a hard time in life, which is especially, you know, why is this happening to me? What can I do to get better? And this like incredible um, offering of a, you know, maybe an almost literal rebirth through transition. Like, I think that those things are incredibly compelling. And the question of whether they are post-Christian or whether they're just a different manifestation of that incredibly deep um, kind of vein of metaphors in the way that we understand the world that comes from Christianity, my, my sense is it's more like, this is, this is a very Christian inspired way to relate to the world and think about things. Gender. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, so I'm less qualified as soon as we get off of that topic. Um, but yeah. I think a lot of it. <laughs> well, you're, lot you're, of it you're the daughter of a pastor. So you, you are steeped in Christian theology, symbolism and stuff. So you see there's, you see some sort of similarity between the gender issue or how people use gender to attain some sort of transcendent purpose and aspects of Christianity. Yeah, and from the like, from the very elevated to the very mundane. So I mean, from, you know, the kind of death and resurrection, the dead name, the new name, the new being, to the things like, it's a way to have a community and to belong in the way that people maybe used to belong at church. Um, And I I did think that I was fairly well-versed in Christianity, but then last night my brother and I were looking and we realized that there's during Holy Week, um, there's a Fig Monday and or Fig Tuesday and a Spy Wednesday, and we'd never heard of those things before. So, Spies? Spy Wednesday, yeah. Like, What does that mean? Um, It's apparently for uh, Judas Iscariot. Oh. The day that he went and... Spies? Yeah, Spy Wednesday. was like, wow. All right. Catholics, like, okay... If my dad had been Catholic, we either wouldn't have been there or wouldn't have been legitimate, but I feel like we missed out not being Catholic. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I, I know very little about Christianity for someone who was raised in a Christian culture. Um, when I was 
in eighth grade, I my mom tried to make me get confirmed, and I was like, all these kids they don't they, they don't even care about Jesus. They just think Jesus like wore Abercrombie, and that's all they care about, you know. Wait, what? And I, <laughs> I, I would complain that it was all about like whether you were one of the cool kids or not in okay. this church. There was no caring about the the meaning, and even like I was a nerdy kid, so I cared about that, right? Yeah. And I remember having to talk to the pastor because I, I had to go through with the class, and. That pastor saved me from becoming anti-religious because I said to him, I'm like, look, I don't know if I want to do this confirmation thing. Um, it seems like it, you know, I'm not sure what I believe. I, I was an agnostic then and I'm a, a optimistic agnostic now is the way I would put it. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, I remember saying to him, you know, I don't, I, I think this should matter. And, and he said, a, you know, a flattering thing to me. He said, oh, you're the only one in this class who's taking this seriously. And he says, my door is always <laughs> open to you. So that made me feel good, you know, when you're 13 yeah. and someone tells you that in authority. So, yeah. Huh. Yeah. But I have come back to this now because it's, it's everywhere in our culture. We just, we don't know it. It's like the fish who doesn't understand water. Mm -hmm. And I have just been backtracking and backtracking because trying to answer some of these, you know, the tropes that are in our culture now that come out of postmodernism that everyone has just accepted and gone along with because that's what everyone's saying. And I say, wait a minute, I'm not I'm not sure I agree with that one being the same annoying kid that I was at 13. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you just got to keep going back. I didn't do philosophy when I was in school. I did like creative writing classes and like other yeah. you know, things that didn't turn out to be very useful. I don't know. Probably I would have thought at that time philosophy wouldn't be that useful. But I feel like it's turning out to be incredibly useful. Intellectual histories, I've gotten really into that. Just trying to figure out where things come from and learning. Like I already understand uh, Plato and his idea of the forms and the ideals, because I read the mm -hmm. Chronicles of Narnia when I was like eight. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like the end of the last battle is this whole lesson yeah. in Platonism. So it's all out there. You just we don't know it. So I'm not okay. surprised if we're just regurgitating the same things, but in a in a perverted way now. Yeah. These other other things that are percolating through the Internet where we have all these kids coming together, having the same struggles that teenagers have had since time immemorial. But now mm -hmm. they talk to each other. There's no one in that interaction to say, hang on a second, let me give you another alternative. They can more mm -hmm. actively shut out everyone who says things they don't want to hear. I think that is also a huge factor in, in this, in the digital age. Yeah. Yeah, and I, the confirmation touches on something else that I think this is not um, kind of a, a hangover from Christianity. It's more, it seems to be like in human societies around the world, it's a basic need is this like transition ritual from adolescence to adulthood where you, you know, you shed your childhood identity and you pick up the other, this other adult identity and like it's recognized by the community. And um, I think the transition serves this function for a lot of kids. It's this attempt to get that kind of recognition. It's this attempt to attempt to individuate um, I, I tend to think it's especially an attempt to individuate when other avenues have been blocked off. What do you mean? What other avenues? Like, you, okay, so my sense of young people who are transitioning, you don't tend to see a lot of like, well adjusted, very successful kids doing it. Right. So if a kid had some other means of getting that recognition, making that transition, getting an identity and it was coming from something like, you know, being a, you know, wonderful musician 
for being an artist or being, you know, having a real like life plan where it was like, oh, you really want to work on, you know, whatever issue it is. Um, these are kids who don't have that and they are looking for a template and they find it in Transta. Yeah. They're kind of like the kids who are getting lost along the way to growing up. Well, and that's, I, I'm sure that has to be part of why the word queer is so popular. I mean, if you take away the, the slur towards gay people, it just, it means you're odd and you're peculiar. Yeah. So you can now embrace that as a, as a badge of pride and honor. Yeah. Well, pride for sure, right? Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about this. Did you guys happen to see Benjamin? Probably not unless you're lurking um on the forum over it there was this wonderful discussion of like nerds versus geeks hmm. and What's the difference? which ones well um so i'm not going to do it justice it was just brilliant it was like nerds may be kind of socially marginalized and they're not cool but they do have some like real skill and they're usually recognized for that real skill by adults and these are not the kids who are, you know, going trans. Mm -hmm. But the geeks, like, superficially, they have some of the similar characteristics where they're like, you know, they're not fitting in with their peers. But they don't have that kind of like, they're much more driven by the way other people see them and the desire to be accepted, which nerds tend to be fairly indifferent or contemptuous of. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, well, and that fits in. Okay, so that's a theme that I really liked myself in the theory of positive mm -hmm. disintegration. The name of my magazine is called the, or it's called Third Factor, which comes from the third factor of development. And we're about to run an article that was written by one of Dabrowski's graduate students, um, you know, a major a name in the field. And it's about, he, he talks more, he brings more context to what the third factor is in the theory. Well, of course, you have to understand the first and second factors. And the first factor is your it's it's, it's nature and nurture, right? It's your your okay. genetic makeup and maybe your, you know, highly sensitive, whatever is, is a big component of it. But the second yeah. factor is actually really interesting. It's the society that's around you and that, you know, affirms you and valorizes you and tells you how you should behave. And it's very popular among people who gravitate toward the theory of positive disintegration, much like these nerds you're talking about, to say, oh, yeah, I don't, I, I reject all of that stuff. I'm going to question all of that. And that's what the yeah. third factor is. It's basically on top of nature and nurture. It, it, it arises out of nature and nurture. It's, it's not saying it's separate from that. But it's, oh, I'm going to choose for myself. I'm going to decide mm -hmm. what, for myself what I think. And I think this describes a certain type of person. I, I, having been in this space for a long time, I have actually come to appreciate the second factor and how it's very useful and we shouldn't knock it because people are wise and they can tell us things that we don't even understand about ourselves, which is like a really mm -hmm. subversive thing to say these days that other people might know things about us yeah. that we don't know. But, but then the second that, factor would be loosely construed as nurture or what? Nurture, environment, peers, societal values. That's Teachers, mentors. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Huh. I like the thought of uh, templates for transition, the templates of transition and transition meaning from one stage of life to another stage of life. And like, how do we deal with the oddballs, right? Yeah. Like, what, what do we do with yeah. the oddballs? Do we celebrate them? 
That's a really good question. That's one that's one way of going about it. You celebrate the oddball. But then everybody then you incentivize everybody being the oddball and then everybody's an oddball and then the real oddballs don't fit into that, you know? Well, we've got a member at Third Factor who um is feels like an oddball because she is a conformist and she just joined the Catholic Church. So <laughs> <laughs> it turns inside out pretty fast. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, it really does. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Well, but you can't like I have really come to believe you can't just celebrate nonconformity. You can't just celebrate being an oddball. You have to, it has to be something else that you celebrate. And then you can say, oh, you're, you're courageous to do that thing that is unpopular, but it's unpopular and good. It's not yeah. unpopular for a, you know, cause it's bad. Some things should be unpopular. And so <laughs> this is the conversation that I'm moving toward. Okay. So you okay. say you're weird. Cool. Let's dig a little deeper on that one. Yeah. And and the kids who find each other online, um, they unite often around negative weirdnesses because mm-hmm. they get into these little valorizing groups where they're really fragile and it can become this self-fulfilling prophecy where everyone just... You, you, you can't, it's the crabs in a bucket, right? You can't decide you're going to cra- climb out of the bucket and overcome your negative mm-hmm. weirdness because the other ones will pull you back in. But, like You belong over your weaknesses, your weirdnesses, your defects. Yes, and if you overcome them, you don't belong anymore and you're making that's everybody correct. else feel bad and you will be punished. Exactly right. Yeah, that's like the social basic social dynamic of all of these like disordered identity communities online. Yep. And it can't happen um, offline quite as easily. It can, but the internet makes it so much easier. And I think that we also don't have an older generation that understands that because they just didn't grow up with this. So no one can even help guide these kids. We're we're building a brand new wheel. We don't have this wheel yet. So, (laughs) yeah, I, I... Maybe in a few generations we'll we'll have the kids won't struggle as much because someone will be able to tell them like, hey, watch out. Yeah. Okay, so I want to ground this somehow. And Eliza, you have a lot of experience looking at one particular issue. And uh, mm-hmm. Jesse, you're you're a systems thinker, if that's the proper term. You, you, <laughs> you have all, you have all these tools and and concepts. Um, well, like, how do we connect these things? So I'm wondering, maybe this is one way of going about that. Like, how did you deal with your own oddballity? Wait, what are you suggesting? Uh, Eliza, you you are you are a perfectly normal person, but you're mm-hmm. really strange. Yeah, I've met you in person. We've had several conversations. I know you're strange, and I know you had to deal with that at some point in your life. Um, Jesse, no offense, but you're strange too. That's like my brand is being weird, but trying to be a good weird. So, you know, yeah. So how how did you guys like acclimate to your weirdnesses? Um, Right. Uh, Or like, like, uh, and maybe, maybe you guys were more integrated. I don't know your full story, Liza. I do know that like, it seemed like you were pretty isolated intellectually on some level. So I don't know how much you had to deal with the stress of fitting in so-called or standing out. Right. So that's what I kind of yeah. like, that's kind of the territory. So like, how did you guys grow into your own skin? You want to go first? Shall I go first? No, go first. Okay. 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 Um, yeah, it was, it was rough. Adolescence was rough. You know, I, I, I think one thing that helped me is that I didn't, I, I at least knew, like I had an ideal of what I was trying to be and people I respected and things that 
people who I respected had praised about me, kind of like you were saying about mm -hmm. the nerds, right? Like some adult at least had been like, hey, this is good. Do more of this. And I respected and trusted that person. So mm -hmm. I like gave in, me something to grasp. In what, in what area? Um, I did a lot of writing from? online. I was on CNN for having a website when I was 15 in 1997. What was your website? Oh, I wrote stories. Okay. <laughs> I haven't actually revealed this yet in my new uh, iteration. <laughs> I guess I could... I, <laughs> No, Wait, it was fanfic it. or what? No, oh God. I Okay, so everyone wrote fanfic <laughs> and I had a chip on my shoulder about fanfic because uh, everyone said, uh, well, not everyone, but I would get comments like, this happened when I was 15 and it's still in my brain. Oh, we really like your stories. They're really good. You should try writing fanfic so it'll be something someone wants to read. And I was like, Ugh. oh, ouch. Yeah, right. Um, no, okay. So I wrote a story. I wrote a series of stories, several of them, the most famous one was something called the official Carlson septuplets page and it was just a family <laughs> that had septuplets and they were famous so <laughs> yeah huh. and then there was a real set born in 1997 like they're grown-ups now but I was like they were waiting for them to be born and CNN's at my house like we need some filler news talk to this kid she's got a website oh wow yeah huh. so you know that helped that that you know, people people are like, well, that's cool. You're on the internet and you're on TV. Yeah. Like, keep doing that. So that gave me something, right? And then people like the pastor saying like, hey, it's not all bad that you're like the only weird kid who's like, I'm not going to get confirmed. Okay. So, but you do have to find eventually your peers, right? And I, so when I started dating my my husband, uh, Max, we, or before, yeah, we had just started dating and he started talking about high school and how much he loved high school. And I remember thinking, you were like, huge red flag, this is not going to work out. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but then he started talking about his high school, and it was all the weird kids. It was like the math and science magnet. He didn't go on to become a math and science guy. He's a Chinese mm -hmm. linguist. But he uh, he connected with other weird kids who were also like on a constructive path. So I think that's what mm -hmm. you need. You need some, some real confidence. Unfortunately, I think the, the trans issue walks a weird line I'm, I'm thinking this out as i as i go i'm like brain you know spitballing here brainstorming but you do get adults affirming you with the mm -hmm. you know the 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 movement the civil rights element so you can it, it could be a way to grasp for that way to have approval and that your type of weirdness is in fact a good type of weirdness but it's so new right um yep. maybe they're maybe that's not a reliable reason to get to something to ground your confidence in at that age yeah i wouldn't be able to say uh, i didn't experience that myself but yeah yeah all right but you had you? something out there you had something out there for adults to adulate like you had some mm -hmm. work that you'd done something extended beyond yourself that one aspect mm -hmm. of the trans identity is that it's an identity and it's very internal. It's very, I guess it is manifested by uh, the production that you do on your body, but it's not the same as writing a novel or getting right. really good at, you know, fixing an engine or something external. It's very, mm -hmm. it's very, it stops at the self. It stops at the level yeah. of the self. I mean, it's something that anybody can take away from you by refusing or just failing to recognize you the way you want to be recognized, which yeah. is totally unlike what Jesse's talking about, where like she wrote a thing and it just existed no matter what anybody thought of it. Yeah. Just much more stable. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, so when I'm thinking about kind of adolescent 
challenges um, <laughs> and feeling misfit and feeling excluded. I What I've been thinking about a lot lately is some people get to choose to kind of be misfit and excluded and some people are going to be misfit and excluded for reasons that they didn't choose and they can't change. Yes, um, I think absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, my experience as a teenager was that I was mostly misfit for reasons that I completely chose. Um, it was your brand. And, well, it was like, I mean, I wrote about this recently because I was writing about the Harry Potter fandom um, on Substack, which I fell into as a teenager and I wrote fanfic. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm judging and, you. No. Yeah, no, no, no. You really, you really, really should. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding, but it's in, I'm interested in this. Like, the like fanfic is so people should be digging into fanfic. I know Helena has talked about it. So yeah, go on, oh, go yeah. on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, I mean, the Harry Potter fandom was this very strange place, and you know there would be these forums, and people would have these really intricate theories where like. Harry and Hermione are like brother and sister, or Ron is like a time traveling version of Dumbledore, or, you know, like these completely wild theories. And people would fight about it all around the world, like all through the night on these forums. And I would go to school and I would, you know, kind of check in what was happening and I would write my fanfic and I would get a lot of validation for writing, which I also got at school. Um, and I, I always found it very strange how heated people would get. Like, I think kind of the shipping, like relationshiping in fandom was probably the most heated area. And sorry, jargon amazed... alert, shipping. Yes, shipping. <laughs> Being really into two characters or maybe more than two characters. I don't know. Getting together. Relationship. Oh, so, shit. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. It was really amazing to me how invested people were in that. Um, and I think at a certain point I realized that like there were some people who were part of the fandom and it was this little escape and you go there sometimes and then you go back to your real life. And there were people for whom that was like the ice flow that they were clinging to because they didn't have anything else and because they could no more choose to fit in than they could choose to like fly around and play Quidditch in real life. Like that was very striking to me. Um, and so I think, I think since I kind of knew what I would have had to do to fit in and I just couldn't bring myself to do it, that it wasn't as hurtful as it probably would have been to be excluded and really want to be let in. And if you have a kind of a healthy dose of contempt for what it would mean to fit in, that's pretty protective. That was me too. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't want, to, don't want to be part of your club. Right, right. It's like... Oh boy, I like I could talk about that stuff, but I could also sit here totally by myself every single lunch and read, you know, <laughs> books about World War Two. Yes, which sounds like better. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember at a certain point in my life. So my just really briefly, my parents moved me around like in the middle of the school year until okay. between first grade and sixth grade. So sixth grade was the first year that I had complete in one. Oh wow. Um, one school. Uh, so I'd always been interrupted. Relationships had always been interrupted with my peers. And then when I landed, it was probably the worst place to land because that's when a lot of these like bullying dynamics went yeah. on and I had to be an outsider and insider and uh, dealing with 
all that stuff. So I think I had developed a sense of individuality by being broken in narrative, but it's also a sense of yeah. disconnectivity as well, like of not like totally belonging anywhere, just kind of being a, a roamer. But I do remember specifically, I think it was when I was 19 or 20, or maybe 18, 19, 20, where I went to the movies alone one time. And it felt like it, it, it felt like I was violating something like, like you, this is a activity that I'm not supposed to do alone. Like, like only weird, strange men go to movies alone. And it was this weird, and I went and I felt that feeling. And then I left the movie theater and I was walking alone through the night. I'm like, it's actually kind of nice to be alone. Like, it was just this thing like, oh, I'm going to embrace being alone, like myself in relationship to nobody else, to not mm -hmm. even thinking about me as a part of anybody. I'm just like this guy walking around alone. All right. It's this interesting. I have a question for you about that then. Because you said, you know, you're, you're sort of you're being disjointed, moving around, having this outsider experience. Do you feel yeah. like you had anything where you felt that was giving you a sense of belonging or where you fit or that could provide solid ground underneath you to just not feel like you're just totally rejected by society at that time. Because my guess would be you can enjoy being alone more if you, if you have that underneath you, but I don't know. What do you think? Um, well, in my high school years, we did find a church that we were very heavily involved in. It was a very social church and the dogma wasn't first and foremost. The community was first and foremost with the school, though there was a lot of Christian stuff like Christian dogma. Um, mm -hmm. so I did have that, I did develop, I did find a place before I completely grew up where I was able to find a sense of having a place where I belonged with a bunch of friends where I belonged. Then when I kind of in my early twenties, I decided to embrace being alone, which is kind of echoes what, uh, both of you guys are saying, like, it's like, Oh, I am kind of like self-sufficient. I am alone. And, and, mm -hmm. and there was this weird moment where I saw like, I could get addicted to this and never actually connect with anybody ever again, because it's just so yeah. nice to be totally, once you get over that hump of like, Oh, I'm so alone. You're like the loneliness. There's like, it's, it's almost like a, a liqueur. Like, Oh, I feel lonely. Isn't that like, there's just something awesome about that. But so unfulfilling. There, well, cause there's a lot of reasons that a person can feel alone and not belong. Well, no belong, like belonging is separate. Right. But, a, but lonely, Mm -hmm. For instance, when I moved from my hometown to Washington, D.C., and I didn't know mm -hmm. anyone, I didn't have a sense that I was, you know, unlovable or that no one could like me. I just didn't have anyone around who did. I didn't have relationships mm -hmm. that were accessible. So it wasn't even though I, I was sad, even though I wasn't blaming myself for it. So that's I wonder how that dynamic fits in, just how uprooted mm -hmm. people are and whether you know, going to college or leaving college, like after college, all, everyone's friends move away. That's such a formative age. I don't, I don't think it's mm -hmm. great that, that we do that. I think that's probably damaging people, but probably some people are a little more resilient. Like, you know, you, you can, I don't know how often people can enjoy loneliness totally. I think that may be uncommon. I mean, certainly it's, it's, yeah. it's not universal. It may be common, but it's not universal. Mm -hmm. I mean, it feels like when you are talking about you move somewhere and you don't know anybody, it's like you have this explanation for why you're alone that doesn't put the right. blame on you. Right. Mm. It's not a judgment. It's not a short source of like shame. 
it's like I'm lonely, but like of course I'm alone. Like I just moved here. I don't know anybody. Yeah. Like that would really help. Whereas, yeah, I think that experience of if you're always around people and you're never making those connections, that would be tremendously painful. Yes. That's where the real danger lies. It's yeah. not it's not necessarily in the isolation. Though that I mean my 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 only point there is that, that that leads to other problems and I wonder how that interacts and there's something there to be addressed as well and I don't know how much those overlap or if it, if they're mm -hmm. com just completely separate. So I actually had a what? Go ahead, go ahead. Just no, no, no. You. Okay, just a quick story. Less than a week ago, like last last Friday, as we record this, it's it's Thursday. Um, I went I went out to dinner by myself at a nice restaurant. Got myself a glass of wine. Had a you know paired the Alsatian tart with the Alsatian Pinot Gris. And uh, you you were at Alsace, weren't you? So I was. Like, it's funny yeah. that you were just recreating it. Yeah. Yep. I was I was recreating it. I studied abroad there, and I had a book. I'm reading about philosophy. I'm reading about Plato, like such a nerd, just like you in the in the cafeteria. Well, maybe not the wine, but um, mm. and I'm just like, this is great. I'm really enjoying this. But nobody could join me. No, everyone else is at work, but I had to go to a meeting and I got there early because the yeah. DC traffic's terrible. And I'm just like, I'm just sitting here. I'm by myself. I'm the only person by myself in this restaurant. I'm like, this is awesome. But I texted someone from there, and I'm like, you know what, I. I, you know, I texted my husband and I'm like, you know, I feel able to be alone now in a way that was much harder when I had just mm -hmm. moved to DC. Because again, even though I felt lovable, mm -hmm. I didn't have access to people. But once you know, like I can get that need met, you know, yeah. in a few hours, but right now, right now I'm good. Right now I'm going to enjoy this. Hmm. Yeah. So. I mean, it's a choice. Yes. Yeah. That's my when story. I, when I was yeah. studying this, th that actually folds right into what I was going to bring up. Uh, when I was studying literature, I can't remember exactly how this came about, but I was studying the development of, of literature. And at one point, like the printing press is created and the novels start to be this thing. And it happened to be the case that there was a very specific class of people who would ingest novels and it would be merchant class females, like daughters of merchants, mm -hmm. like where they're, they're kind of like, they're not aristocracy, but they're well off enough where they have time to, to be alone mm -hmm. and to not do anything. Um, and you have this development of solitude with, in conjunction with literature or the availability of literature. So, mm -hmm. and it dovetails with what you both were saying and, and probably in my life too, finding surrogate friendships through literature or through the act of writing and, and the life of the mind. So it's not like, so in one sense I am alone, like I'm surrounded by everybody, you know, but I'm alone with my book. I'm like very mm -hmm. separated, but it's not like a silence where I, I really am alone because I'm interacting through like the reflection or like ricocheting off of this page or the life of the mind. So there's this other, aspect of of solitude or or negotiating a tolerance for solitude or even a addiction or love affair with solitude but it's in conjunction with you know with a literary and and that reminds me of what you brought up eliza with lisa last time this really very fascinating thing where you said where you were reading so much and you were going between history and fiction and you would 
you had this slippage of you didn't know what, mm -hmm. which was real and which was fiction, like because you were just ingesting so much. Yeah, at a certain so stage in childhood, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was all, but it was all in your mind. And so there was a slippage between like, it, this isn't direct experience. It was all mitigated through fiction or narrative. Yeah. And some of the narrative aligned with reality and some of it didn't. Yeah. So I think that that might be an aspect uh, of a similarity between all three of our uh, ability or tolerance for solitude, mm -hmm. literary, intellectual. Yeah. Oh gosh, what both of you are mentioning, I hear so much in, in this circle of people who are like, you know, not not the gender stuff, but the other stuff that I look at and this type of person and, and who does well and who doesn't do well. Um, the in healthy, what respect? Do well the healthy outsider, the person okay. who chooses, right? I'm, I'm trying to find something else. I'm still trying to meet this need. Maybe even as an adult, you haven't quite mm -hmm. found it. You're, you know how to fit in, but you're, you feel like something's missing. And so often from those people... Um, they'll say things much like what you just said, Benjamin, that I'm, I, I find people who I want to talk to in books because they're not present here. That's just mm -hmm. where you find your human connection. Like I hear that all the time. And it's also really interesting. So Dabrowski's theory, the theory of positive disintegration talks about overexcitabilities, which is, we can just get really, really badly abused, uh, as an identity and, uh, you know, whatever we can follow that tangent if you want, but it's a tangent. So the, anyway, in, in its in its positive form, there are five forms of them. There's the um, there's kinest, uh, like psychomotor. There's sensory, and then there's uh, there's emotional, and then intellect and imagination. And so you're always hearing about these people who are just looking for someone who can feed their super stimulable, excitable intellects mm -hmm. or imaginations you always hear in the books we read about it and and then people tell their stories kids who have to figure out where the line is between reality and fantasy because their fantasy worlds are so vivid mm -hmm. or they're make, like exactly what you're talking about right like it's all to you it's all the same right that you can you can see it all vividly mm -hmm. so and yeah. so what's the what's the path towards positive integration of excitability in um in the realm of which we're speaking the imaginal and intellectual well those are those are simply driving forces toward it people who experience those things will be more likely to have a disintegration from an unhealthy social norm but it will be more likely to be positive if it is fueled by this intellectual or imaginational or you know we could, emotions it, orthodoxy of the theory says the emotions have to be there too i wonder if if dabrowski would feel differently if he were on the internet nowadays but technically those three are what propel you toward this this higher path in life so that's the can you give can anyway. you give like a concrete example of of, of this or like or a metaphorical example even I'm you can talk about a, a, a peter rabbit or something like that wait you mean of the process of these of that particular process people? like this disintegration and then this ability to go to a higher path like what do you what do you mean like how, how does this yeah. work out and well i don't know if i have like a great example but i can sort of talk through the process which you know just it seems like what these people on this path follow is, all right, I'm taking in so much intellectually or I'm producing so much with my imagination that it's, well, okay, now I know. The way the emotions, 
the way the emotions matter is that your emotions are signals as to what's good, what's bad, right? You're reacting mm -hmm. negatively to something. You got to figure out why. So you have these strong emotions that are fueling that. And so that leads you to ask these questions and better questions and to see possibilities because of the imagination. And one hopes if this theory is correct, and a lot of people will say that it's not or that it's incomplete, but if it is correct, then it is what it, this, this is the fuel to help you discern what is better in life, to, to do something constructive, to do something healthy, to be able to articulate values and to be able to say why these values are superior. Okay. Does that answer your question? Well, the question was a story. Yes, like I, want, I, I want a story. I like I want to like, okay. like even Anyone like Ferris Bueller's Day just Off. Like it could be okay. Peter or a screenplay. Like 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 just let's do fanfic. Right. Okay, I got just one. Put I me in one. a place. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, one of my favorite historical figures is uh, Robert F. Kennedy, uh, Senior. Okay. Now you <laughs> specify right. Well, historical figures, um, and he was i mean when he was younger he was he was called ruthless and there's you know people say that he actually fixed the election for his older brother and like there's definitely things you can criticize mm -hmm. this guy for but um and I, when i first read about dobrovsky's theory i thought oh this is about all those traits i saw in bobby kennedy that made me like him and think he was interesting because he was very <laughs> clearly overexcitable he was way into ancient Greece, right? Part of why I got into reading this stuff is because he got into reading this stuff and I was reading about him. Uh, and he always would make references when he's giving speeches to everybody, like to the, to the masses, like he's telling mm -hmm. them about like Aeschylus and what he had to say about life and the masses don't care, but he cares and he makes people care. Um, and yeah. so he, you can see when you look at his story that he's fueled by this sort of intensity and energy of the intellect, especially, and the imagination. And so, but he also was arguably fearful for a time because, hey, his brother got shot would make makes a lot of people a little hesitant, you know, uh, mm -hmm. to do things like run for president. But he ended up doing it because he just had this drive and the strong force, like the strong well of emotion that just said, like, you have to, you have to, even though, you know, he knew that what happened to him could happen to him. This was this, like, well wouldn't have come as a surprise to him, but he did it anyway. So, yeah. uh, but there's a great, there's a great line in, in the biography that I, I like of him. Uh, and I can't remember the author, but one of the biographies um, where he, well, probably many biographies include this because it's a great anecdote. He's training to climb a mountain that they've just renamed after his brother who has been killed. <laughs> he To train for it, he runs up and down the stairs in his mansion that he lives in yelling help. It's like, this is all I did to trade. I ran up and down yelling help. Huh. So, you know, this is just like, this is the character. This is, and he's the yeah. weird in the family. And his, his father's just like, oh, Bobby's not going to amount to anything. He's the weirdo. So there you go. Okay. <laughs> As a story. Benjamin, who did you relate to when you were a teenager? Who was your role model? Role model. Oh, gosh. Um, teenager role model. Yeah. Oh gosh, that's a big question. I I don't think I had role models until later, but oh gosh. <sighs> Tell <laughs> if that's really started. true or if it's too embarrassing. <laughs> no, I can't think of like uh, what was it? So, what did we end up doing? Uh, who were the heroes back then? 
I guess what movie stars, rock stars. Like what was cool to be? I I'm gonna have to think about that. Like I'm I'm mm-hmm. not like trying to like dredge up like uh, high school level heroes. You know, or like, when you I were just, a kid. Uh, I mean, like yeah. Who did you look up to or want to be like or? Did you have anybody like that? I, I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jim Henson, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I remember when he died, it was like my JFK got in, getting shot. Like, he just had meningitis and he died. And I got the news. It was just devastating to me because he had created this entire world. Like, Sesame Street, yeah. The Muppet Show, Dark Crystal, uh, uh, you know, Labyrinth. Like, just the wellspring of imagination. And he was, like, at the helm, just, like, incentivizing all these creative people and articulating just and going everywhere that the imagination would go. They went like from the darkest places to the silliest, but you know, from pigs in space mm-hmm. to uh, some really gnarly stuff, especially in the dark crystal, they get, it gets really gnarly and, and he didn't shy away from all the aspects of the imagination. So somebody with his drive and, and uh, really set me up to to value two things in in the artistic life or in the intellectual life, like be prolific and be potent, and try to do try to maximize both. Try to have things that are really meaningful, and not dilute yourself, but be as prolific as possible. Just constantly mm-hmm. be creating, constantly be creating, constantly be creating, but always like seeking, like not to not to rest, never resting on your laurels, never like replicating something over and over again. Trying to find the nugget or the grain of truth. Um, I think that him uh, and any sort of artist that has a huge wealth of work, you know, like just mm-hmm. somebody who really has a lot of stuff that he produced really set me up. Like in order to be a successful artist, which is something that I wanted to do, you have to either, you know, find that really potent seed or just constantly produce work. And like, so trying to do both is like, would be something that I learned from Jim Henson. Yeah. Okay. And, and the guy answer. was not afraid to like yeah. use, like he would go every, he like use very silly voices, you know? So he'd be very silly and very serious at the same time. Right. So being able to go wherever the imagination mm-hmm. goes uh, and, and make that make sense. Like doing everything from children's songs to like really intense philosophical work. You can, do everything if you're in that realm of like just creative exploration yeah Yeah. you can see that you know what i learned from someone like jim henson is that you know that the stuff if you just describe the stuff that he creates and it's sort of like some sort of not very confident uh kid creating this they might feel like these are silly these are things that they should be ashamed of or they would get picked on for if they don't have status Mm -hmm. they probably would get picked on for but Jim Henson was remarkable and won people's esteem and created masterpieces, you know, of even if it's, you know, the Muppets, call it what you will. It was a cultural touch point. So Mm -hmm. I think that that's an important lesson for the young person Mm -hmm. who wants to kind of do his or her own thing. What about you, Eliza? That was a great question. Who are your heroes? How did you get in your skin? Who's Um, your hero? What's your paragon? How how did you get set up to being who you are today? The person that I really, not idolized, but I I think she was the first person that I ever found in the history books where I was just like, I want to be like that, um, 
it was Dorothea Legg, the photographer through the Works Progress Administration. Um, and she had been this like society photographer in San Francisco. And then the Great Depression lands on her doorstep and she picks up her camera and she goes outside and it just completely changes her life. And she's, you know, she's traveling around the country. She's documenting what's happening and she's bringing together this. I mean, she has this exquisite eye. And if you go through her shots, she's writing all of these notes about, you know, the conversations that she has with these people. Hmm. So she's taking, she's making art, she's gathering, you know, she's doing research, she's gathering information, and then what she finds matters. I mean, she humanizes hmm. these experiences, and that is part of how, you know, different social support programs were beefed up during the Great Depression. We're just making it, making it visible, making it understandable. Huh. So, so she, she became an unwitting totally my... propagandist then, in a way. <laughs> Propaganda is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. And she yeah. had work that was like commissioned by the government and then suppressed too. Like she she did um, a trip to a, like a Japanese internment camp during World War II. Ah. And it turned out that the government didn't want the photographs that they had commissioned and buried them for a long time. So she's she's the embodiment of the unflinching eye, in a way. But. Yeah, she is, and she's she kind of seems like another iteration of a tradition that was really attractive to me, which was that kind of like muckraking transition uh, tradition in journalism. So that was what was always really appealing to me. Could you? This is a bit of jargon, kind of, but it's sure. older jargon. So what's muckraking yeah. journalism? Is that what it sounds like? Um, it's. It's basically like investigative journalism, especially. Uh, so it's referring in particular to journalism, like during the period of like intensive industrialization. Um, and it might cover people like Upton Sinclair, who's, who wrote The Jungle, who's writing about, you know, the meat factories, the sausage factories, um, illuminating what goes on. Um, like Ida B. Wells, like Jacob Reese, who's photographing the tenements in New York. Um, there are people who are exposing things that are they're kind of inconvenient narratives, especially an inconvenient narrative for progress. Um, it's like, okay, this is the underside of what we celebrate and, and this is what's hard to see. Um, yeah. What's the, what, why? Like, why does that, why did that excite you? Why did that, you know, turn, engage you, turn you on? It's hard. I mean, it's hard to describe because it's like so deeply innately appealing that I just don't even have like words for it. Huh. Like there was just there's just something really thrilling about it where it's like you go and you find the thing that's really happening that yeah. nobody else wants to look at. Yeah. And the more I think about it, the more I'm like, OK, it's totally not a coincidence that I got like roped into the gender stuff. <laughs> I was just yeah, going to no. say, like, yeah, this is the path you're on, of course. No, I know. It was just it's like I mean, you're literally me, unveiling uh, what's hidden under the progress fl flag. Yeah, no. And I, and I remember reading about the muckrakers for the first time when I was like 11 or 12 and just being like, I want to do that. Yeah. Huh. Muckraking journalist, Eliza Mondegreen. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to, I'm waiting for your photo expose, expose of the gender clinics. Right. That could be tricky. Yeah. Yeah. How the sausage is made. 
Yeah, that was actually something I was hoping we could talk about um, how the sausage is made, because I think Jesse and I are both coming from a kind of a similar progressive nonprofit-y background. Okay. And I would kind of, I would love to know more about your experience in that realm and sense of how it works and sense of how we kind of got where we are. Yeah. um... Progress sausages? (laughs) Ground this a little bit more. Yeah, what what specifically? Because I could ramble in several different directions, but like background stuff? A little background and like... Something about leftism. You you, you texted me as your alter ego. Right. Because you're both progressives or were. Uh, Jesse, you were literally like a CIA analyst that uh, attended the Social Democrat Convention. I'm a CIA socialist. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. Eliza's NGO. Yeah. Okay. Um, Well, you should listen to my new podcast. That was episode four. uh, When when struggle sessions spur positive disintegration. And I tell the story in like an an hour long spiel. So, but I'll give you a short version now. And if you think it's interesting, you can, you can go listen to that. Um, yeah, so I was curious. I remember I didn't want to leave Detroit. I wanted to mm-hmm. stay where I had family, where I felt belonging, because I would feel lonely, kind of alluded to that earlier. So this is on that theme. Yeah. But I was also really, really, really bored. I went to library school because I thought that was a way to earn money and be a writer. And it was boring. <laughs> I didn't want to do it after I was in that school. And there was a CIA recruiting booth. I'm like, oh, that's a way to make a total left turn and right turn, whichever way the turn is. And was it uh, Spy Wednesday? Uh, it was, yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it was. And yeah, so I, I ended up doing that because it was interesting, right? Like, there's there's few jobs that are as interesting as like predict the future for U.S. policymakers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was pretty cool. Um, that's what an analyst does. I did, uh, I was a leadership analyst, which is like being a biographer. Cause like, I, you mm-hmm. know, I know about historical figures. I'm really interested in characters. So that's what I was doing. Um, now, uh, DSA is not a political party, so it doesn't violate the Hatch Act for me to be involved as like an educator and to do reading groups and stuff with DSA. Yeah. And so I'm lonely again, I want to make friends. And I'm also annoyed at our economic system for not having any interesting jobs in my hometown of Detroit. And I'm like, I'm interested. I want to learn more about how our economy works mm-hmm. and why I'm in this position. I mean, I got a good job. I made the choice to go to this job, but it was a tough decision, actually. Um, so yeah, that's how I ended up going to DSA meetings because they had talks about this sort of stuff. And I'm still like, yeah, economically, I have a lot of left kind of in the left views. Now I also run my own business and I see how people mooch off of things and stuff. So I have sympathy towards, you know, other, uh, you know, some on the right too, but you know, that's, that's where I came from. That's why I was interested in socialism. And I thought it would be a great way to care about ordinary working people Mm -hmm. and not do all this identity politics. I had just learned the word Mm -hmm. identity politics. I'm like, I don't think this is the right direction. I'm not really interested in that. I didn't have to hate it at the time because it wasn't so in my face. But like, I was when was this? Then. This was 2013. Okay. Yeah. Right before 2011 it to 2013. goes yeah. critical. Yeah. And yeah. then, and the story that I tell in the podcast that I mentioned is about a scandal that erupts and divides the organization of DSA 
after it um, it explodes in membership after Trump is elected. It you could you know I was talking to the you know people on the the national team as we're watching the electoral college returns that mm-hmm. night, and they were just saying like oh my god the more states turn red the more people are rushing in to this organization it was it was bizarre and it like quintupled in mm-hmm. size in a matter of like a month or so or something like that and it was it used to be all these 60s radicals and then it suddenly was all these gen zers who were super woke <laughs> i'm sorry what's going on and i got run out of the organization not because of the trans issue but in a similar way because i tried to stand up for this old school guy who was a union organizer but he had organized mm-hmm. police unions so that was bad and okay. that was when i said i don't i don't want any part of these people they are scary and dysregulated and this isn't oh. going anywhere good okay yeah. interesting that's my story so there, there's a bunch of i mean it's kind of like what we talk we would be talking these are oddballs yeah. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. But on ma- in mass oddballs. So like, there's something like where they haven't individuated. You think they, you know, when mm-hmm. you think of the '60s radicals that you were uh, fraternizing with, mm-hmm. they had they read a lot. There was a lot of reading and writing in that Marxist tradition, like where there's yes. just these long screeds about all these things and the theory and stuff oh, like yeah. that. And uh-huh. and Gen Z's more memey like memeable, like like that very famous, beautiful. Uh, footage from their meeting i think it was in 2018 where they just everybody's saying their pronouns and they're yelling at each other about oh, clapping or snapping or like because everybody's hypersensitive you know and yeah. so it's like oh that was the 2019 convention i was at the 2015 and 2017 ones okay. 2015 yeah. was great like belonging small friendly whatever they had pronouns on our name tags i'm like whatever i don't know what that really means but whatever yeah and by 2017, with like the like jazz hands only, you're you know whatever point of personal privilege. Oh, oh you're right. It wasn't even snapping, was it? It was like no, yeah. yeah. Even that was too much, and and don't yeah, yeah. don't misjudge. So, but there's a distinct. So, kind yes. of what we've been talking about is like there are oddballs, and there's a way for the oddballs, for the weirdos, for the outcasts to own that and to grow into their skin, they might just be on a different trajectory of development in one way and one respect, but something in the generation where it's almost like they're cutting corners to coolness. And so they all glom on to these really uh, maladaptive forms of uh, social regulation that is really dysregulated when you get into the the pronouns you get to dis like these really weird kind of forms of like praising mm-hmm. disability like disability is actually a a superpower somehow you know or like you know with the mm-hmm. fat studies all these different variations and somehow mm-hmm. the left or what we kind of describe as a left was the shelter for those weirdos to like kind of go in and it gave them political capital you know, with with the with all the civil rights stuff, they were really activated through this lingo, and then you can probably tack it on to the the reengineered uh, Marxist political theories that we call postmodernism or neo Marxism mm-hmm. or cultural Marxism and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That empowered the weirdos. It empowered the underdog to like go full blast. But on a societal level and on an individual level, these people haven't done the steps of actually being comfortable in their own skin, like really having a sense of self. And I guess positive disintegration is, is kind of like that transit through this really discomfort 
uncomfortable, like, like distressing path and really owning yourself, owning your weirdness specifically. I, yeah, I, I think that is an essential part of this process. And your disintegration isn't going to be positive if you can't do that. That's my take. So how does the struggle session lead to this or could lead to this? And the struggle session would be a bunch of people ganging up on you to make you tear yourself down. Yeah, tear yourself right. down, tear yourself. you need to say what they need you to say to get back in their good graces. And that's your belonging. That's your, your social sphere because it it's it sure can be that's why people join i mean like i said i moved to dc i had no friends these people were interesting they became my mm -hmm. social circle and you just realize like again building on that temperamental quality that all of us have which is you know what actually i don't want to fit in with you i've decided that actually this is not a good scene even though i'm mourning the fact that it used to be a good mm -hmm. scene to me for whatever reasons it no longer is bye but it is uh you have to make that choice. You have to figure out if it's worth making that choice. What are the consequences of making that choice? Am I just doing it because I'm reacting to something, you know, that, 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 that is, is it me? Am I the one who is wrong? Is it my bad? You, it's good. To, it's good to ask those questions. Right. Yeah. But in that case, nope. Um, being put in that sort of situation is making, I think more and more people, probably a lot of people are going to be watching this who watch your channel, Benjamin, like say, I'm, I'm sure that I ask myself if I'm crazy, I don't think I'm crazy, but I also don't want to be alone because mm -hmm. other people are, you know, mostly good. <laughs> We're social creatures. Hmm. I think that's basically the process that a, a struggle session is, will, will trigger in our institutions and in our organizations and probably also in progressive NGOs. I want to hear your story, yeah. Eliza. Like, how, what did you come out of? Um, yeah, so I was in the NGO sector um, in public health, mm -hmm. and it was it was wait jargon alert. I'm sorry, we should all know sorry. this term, but I yes, always forget yes, yes. NGO non government organization or not non government organization. But this really is a government organization. Like it's exactly the opposite of what it says. It's a lobby group that uses public funding to sculpt cultural and societal. Uh, uses mechanisms. a mix of public and private funding to influence public policy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I was at this, you know, progressive think tank in public health. Um, and at first I found it to be a really satisfying job. This was in like, you know, 2011 or 2012 um, when I was getting started just out of college. And, um, you know, my job was basically to learn about a bunch of different things and then figure out how to communicate them to other people, which I found very satisfying. Um, hmm. And over time, the nature of the work really changed and the environment in the kind of the office really changed too. And Trump was definitely a major kind of deranging factor in that entire sector, but it definitely started much earlier. And I don't know, it was so interesting. I mean, it became this my the place where I worked went from being a place that did pretty practical, small, advocated for pretty practical, small policy changes. So it'd be things like, okay, we're working with like this local advocacy group and helping them to change a local policy so that like women who are survivors of domestic violence can break their leases without being penalized hmm. or can break their phone contracts without, you know, things that would make a big difference 
in the life of a you know a woman who's trying to get out of a relationship like that not exactly you know moving the earth type stuff but real stuff yeah and over time it really shifted from those kinds of like practical material things how to make this happen to this really abstract battle primarily against white supremacy although transphobia did come in um and it just became almost entirely rhetorical and the dynamics in the office completely shifted in a very um I, it was really just like this like sensitivity arms race where it was like can, who can come up with the most byzantine way that somebody could possibly feel like marginalized <laughs> or excluded by anything that we increasingly like only said like because we weren't doing things anymore it would be like if somebody reads this press release how could they possibly feel bad about it and how could we possibly demonstrate the maximum sensitivity uh and i do think that these why like, are you immune to that if everybody else around you is doing that why do you why are you the odd woman out i mean there were other people who didn't like it either okay and we would generally you could generally detect them because there'd be a wry glance yeah there's yeah. like there's something in the face the main a... thing, i mean you don't know who to wryly glance at until you notice who's being really quiet when they when it would be um good for your career to be enthusiastic huh. and innovative in this particular direction uh and it was it was really interesting to see the way that like a kind of like robert uh robin d'angelo type anti-racism and the way that um the very wacky like radical beliefs about gender kind of took over organizations like mine because it was exploiting these vulnerabilities that had always existed. Hmm. And I think one of the main ones was an organization like mine mixes mixed research and advocacy, which is always a little bit playing with fire because you really want to make sure that the research comes first and the advocacy comes second. But it's really tempting to put the advocacy first and the research second. And then you work backwards from this conclusion that, you know, the funder wants you to arrive at or the cause needs you to arrive at. And, you know, then what you find is kind of predetermined. And it allows you to say like, oh, you know, like, this is still this huge issue. And like, now more than ever we need to do all this stuff. Um, so that kind of way of approaching problems, there are issues where it's not super problematic or it's not obviously problematic. Like you can be like, okay, kids only, you know, kids not having food outside of school. You can predict that that's going to be bad for a kid to be hungry. And if you start out with the assumption that it's bad for a kid to be hungry, and then you do the research that shows that kids are going hungry, that's not going to get you into like, you know, choppy water where you're like, you know, way out of whatever. <laughs> when it comes to something like, anti-racism of a particular flavor or gender it's extremely risky because you're like uh, i think it's kendi who's like you need to see how racism is operating in every single situation the assumption is it's operating in every single situation and with gender the working backwards approach is like okay if trans women are women then it doesn't matter if they're you know dangerous to female prisoners it doesn't matter if they're unfair to compete against female athletes because they're women and you're working backwards and you just kind of 
cannibalize reality in order to hmm. serve the cause of like we already mm -hmm. decided this is how it is hmm. so what what makes those people different from you and people like us who will say wait a minute <laughs> this is not I, a good yeah yeah this is the hinge of, on which all of these like these groups break into two yeah hmm. i have thought about this a lot and it's like I had a particular friend and for many years we had the same job in the same organization that we kind of split down the middle and trying to understand what happened between us has helped me to kind of understand that because she was an activist first and I was a researcher first. And for the first several years that we worked together, that led us to the same place, like to the, we got to the same conclusions. And when conditions changed, our orientations started to really matter and led us to very different places. So when something like the gender stuff came on the scene in a big way, especially around like 2015, um, her, the way that she reacted to that was, she was like, okay, how do I support this? And the way that I reacted to it was, okay, what's going on here? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that leads you totally different places. And I think, when I think about my coworkers, when I think about a lot of people I know who identify, you know, very firmly as progressives, um, I think I think that there has been this kind of campaign to stir up guilt and shame and insecurity in white progressives in particular, and then when you, I mean, when you play with somebody's guilt and shame and insecurity like that they become very malleable oh yeah yep i mean hmm. well i think you know, it's also yeah. it, it it's appealing the white progressives specifically it that guilt shame and insecure well well especially the guilt and the shame the white guilt or the white shame or the, yeah. you know the, that uh you are racist um, no matter what you do. Um, so prostrate yourself in front of the idol of anti-racism and go through these motions. Uh, there is, <laughs> it is very Christian. It's very Unitarian, um, Christian. Um, but also it's, it's classist mm -hmm. in that the person who can afford to do that can differentiate themselves from those other white people, yeah. like the real white supremacists, right? So there is this, like rarefication process that the guilt is yeah. able to be weaponized to distinguish yourself against like the, the unknowing whites, the unwashed whites. Right. And mm -hmm. then I'm, I'm, but I'm, I'm even more aristocratic because in a racial, in a racial view of things, how do you tell the good white people from the bad white people? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and if they're all, if whiteness is whiteness, then you have to, you have to do a little trick. So there's, there, there's another game that be, that's being played. They're not just, they're incentivized to use this guilt and shame mm -hmm. and become very malleable because they want status. And part of the status is differentiation from those yeah, evil white, are... white supremacists. And, and that's what makes sense of these entirely ridiculous articles that pop up about why does why why is white supremacy becoming more and more diverse why are there so many uh you know why are there so many black and brown people who are like on board with white, white supremacy yeah, yeah like yeah because the progressive mind it, like it, it's fracturing in this very novel way yeah i mean there are positive like you're talking about some kind of positive incentives of 
posturing and being the good white person and um, being the good progressive. There are also the negative ones that come out of using guilt and shame, which is that you teach people to distrust their intuitions and judgments and to detach from them and disown them. Um, and when you tell people, I mean, you're really privileged, you won't understand this just because you don't understand it. That doesn't mean that you get up, you know, off the hook for supporting it. Um, when you make it, you know, we were a think tank and people became terrified to think out loud. Yeah. That was very telling. Um, the, the idea that like intent doesn't matter, I think was maybe particularly pernicious where it's like, if the presumption of good faith on the part of, you know, people that you've worked with for years who you know to be, you know, generally good people has completely collapsed. It's, it's like the organization is just on a certain level done for. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then I've been studying a lot about the role of the nervous system that also ties back in with like those overexcitabilities and stuff, this, you know, just yeah. being sensitive, being activated when your nervous system is in like fight or flight. Everyone's talking about that these days. It seems like maybe yeah. that's just my circle, but maybe because of this, you're not going to be able to get to that. What is it? The prefrontal cortex? I'm, obviously, I'm not an expert, but you're not going to be able to ask the thinky, thinky part. The thinky part. Yes, it just goes <laughs> offline because your brain, your your body's like, nope, keep, stay alive. Yeah. Don't don't say the wrong thing. So like, they're yeah. using that. That's built into it. Yeah, just that tribal here. brain that's like, I don't want to get kicked out of the herd and okay, you know, yeah, live or die on the savanna alone and never be able to sleep without one eye open and whatever is going on up there. I remember I think when is... Helen Joyce yeah. was on Heterodorks, she was talking about being that person. Like, yep, our genes managed to get passed on somehow. <laughs> but yeah, like I, oh yeah, I relate to that. Huh. Yeah. yeah. There, um, this is also an aspect of this conversation or are the fault lines, what we're trying to, to distinguish, like between the weirdos who go in one direction or another, or the people who mm -hmm. follow the progressive herd or the people for whom a struggle session makes them lean into that group or to just distance themselves from the group, right? There's this split and, yeah. and there's all these dynamics to it. What happened, there was an article that just came out. It was hilarious. I thought it was totally hilarious. Apparently there's this high school in Canada that's banned every book before 2008. Mm -hmm. Yes. It, and this it's pure Maoism. Like we are erasing history. We are at year zero and year zero for some reason, 2008, but it's yeah why 2008 was that like is it because it's like a year or so after the last harry potter book was published like, did they want to... <laughs> I, I, I didn't see a reason why 2008 i was really wondering but there's this aspect of american maoism and that's what it is and it, that, that's in canada but i think canada's going for it you you yeah. see trudeau kind of acting like a dictator, you know, kind of following this kind of thing, but he's not really that smart. I don't feel him. Very, I feel like he's just leaning into the process or the system that is, I don't know. You could probably make a case that there's a top down aspect going on in this stuff, but there's also just this emergent property where yeah. for some reason, mm -hmm. these librarians, and they're probably mostly women, no offense, decided to like lean into this thing and we're going to ban everything because it's problematic before 2018. There's this emergent property of Maoism. There's this emergent property of these struggle mm -hmm. sessions. This and, and all the things that we're talking about are things that happened kind of top down in China with this mind control stuff and all this group dynamics. Both it was top down and it was bottom up where like the way to distinguish yourself was to be, you know, like we were talking about Even like an more innovator radical. in this like sensitivity arms race. You know, yeah. 
you yeah. are the one you that's how you demonstrate that you have this superior political sensibility is this like extreme sensitivity to an ideological slight yeah it gives you status and if, yeah. why why that bestows status why other people accept yeah. it and the second degree i'm like wait why why would you vote for that person that but mm. yeah I see why Trudeau does what he does. I, I feel like the leaders who rise up, like they make total sense. It's the people who vote for them that I don't get. Wait, could you expand on that? Like, why does it make um, sense that Trudeau? I mean, has been in power for however long. Like, well, it's, like you know, it's it's easy enough to read the room and say, okay, these are the things I have to say okay. to mm -hmm. win votes. That's yeah. simple. But why are the people willing to vote for that? And that I don't get because the voter could could vote for whatever they want. So I don't know if there's some kind of weird cycle going on that they have identified with that tribe, mm -hmm. you know, the the Liberal Party or whatever. This, but yeah, hmm. I don't know. I think that that's all I got on that that idea. Yeah. Where okay. does it, where does it break down? Maybe like another thing that you both brought up that Trump for some reason triggered. Like it, it was like uh, there's a, there's this uh, it's a chemical reaction like where there's water's on the verge of freezing but it needs like that one little thing to crystallize and then the rest of it all of a sudden crystallize so it seems like yeah. it had been like we were at a saturation point all of the, these progressive specifically progressive organizations were at a saturation point. And it didn't quite go there, but for some reason, Trump triggered that. Mm -hmm. And and it's really interesting with the Democratic Socialist Party, like Trump got into power on the backs of the working class and the Democratic Socialists were trying to work for the working class, but the working class had been sold out by the elites and Trump went against the elites. So they, it could have been the case that the socialists went for Trump in a way, but they didn't, they, they, they were flooded over by these anti, there's something about, and, and Eliza, you brought up the derangement quality of it. Like, mm -hmm. what do you guys think about that? Why Trump, was it his mannerism or was it how he was portrayed or how he, he, like, what was, why that of all things? Was it going from Obama to Trump? Was that like, kind of like a, a part of it too? Like we thought Maybe. we had gotten to a black president and now we're back in the eighties yeah. with this. I, I think that's gotta be part of it. We were just talking about people we looked up to, right? For various reasons. And Obama represented ideals of educated people. Like I, I really liked Obama. I, mean, I had a lot of criticisms of him too. That's how I ended up in the socialists and not the democratic party. It was sort of an intra left battle, but you know, mm -hmm. he, there were things I respected about Obama. And then if that's your sort of template of like, this is a good leader, um Trump is the opposite of that and like I don't I, I don't like Trump but I like a lot of Trump voters and I understand why they overlook certain things that to me I'm like oh I don't I don't think I can get behind him mm -hmm. but I was a I was a Bernie girl I mean I was in the socialist group and but it made perfect sense to me though I was not such a person it didn't puzzle me that there were Bernie primary voters who voted for Trump in the general I mean, mm -hmm. this is, can't be proved. You can argue with me. It's fine. It's just interesting. It shows your line of thought. But I'm a believer that Bernie would have won if he'd gotten the nomination because it was just a, it was a throw the bums out, anti-status yeah. quo year. I don't think he would have won in possible. 2020. But yeah, like that's how I see the dynamic working out. Yeah. 
You don't want to talk about Trump. Eliza doesn't want to touch. She no, she, she won't even play. She won't even like like say say the say his name. She she just like. No, I I don't know what I have to add to what Jesse said. Okay. Um, I remember the day that he announced that he was running. It was a really hot summer day, and one of my really good friends and I got together in the evening and we watched his little like he's riding down the escalator and it's really ridiculous. Um, on Twitter and my friend was just laughing his ass off at how ridiculous and it was like it was ridiculous but by the time he was done talking I was just like he's gonna win like he's gonna be president really yeah and I think you know I think one of the major sources of appeal was you know Trump is among being a reaction to many other things is a reaction to a climate of constriction that people really didn't like and he was willing to you know he's this disinhibiting force in American politics. He's this, he'll say whatever people don't want him to say and whatever people aren't supposed to say. Hmm. And I do get why that was appealing. Yeah. Because I felt that sense of, you know, I felt that sense of constriction too, even if it wasn't about the same subjects. Hmm. Yeah. But the constriction got even more constricted. But the constriction got, yeah. I mean, I, I also think that part of it is, let's say that somebody who wasn't Trump had become president. I think that there would have been an exacerbation of these kind of pernicious dynamics on the left in any case, because when your party is in power, you can have, you know, more space for dissent within a party, within a progressive kind of movement. And when your party is out of power, then you're supposed to band together and you're supposed to, I mean, it becomes again, like, it becomes again, this law of, you know, does this help us politically, whether it's true or not? Or does this hurt this hurt us politically, whether it's true or not? Okay. Got to turn out the voters. You got to turn out the voters and you have to like band together and overlook the things that would normally divide you. Right. But that it was much, much, much crazier because it was Trump. And because he was, I mean, because he was so offensive to so many people's um sensibilities on mm -hmm. the progressive side of things yeah that makes me think about how so many of the more interesting at least to me discussions about politics these days are happening intra-left and intra-right like yeah. how does the gop redefine itself is it going to be the trump party what about the people who are fleeing from that the never trumpers what are their points should the democratic elites actually are they really aligned with the never trumpers is that a new party i mean there's a there's a really good book uh it's called the next realignment by frank de stefano and i really recommend mm -hmm. it i think you know probably a lot of people listening to this would would find it interesting and he, it's a lot of history i learned a lot of u.s history from it about previous realignments and the last one was like the new deal and now mm -hmm. he says we're overdue for it. Political scientists say we're overdue for it and yeah. it's happening and it's going to be huge chaos. But the question is, how is it going to happen? How, what mm -hmm. are the values that are going to realign each party? So I'll tell you what I had, I'm being trained to be a debate chair for Braver Angels. And okay. it's, it's wait, cool. what is that? Braver Angels is a depolarization organization. 
And well, I'm, you know, I think that's great. The, the main draw for me is the debate. I just really like talking to people about this kind of stuff. And I kind of, I lost, you yeah. know, DSA. I'm looking for other things to belong to. And we have a really good Braver Angels chapter here in, in Washington, D.C. So I'm learning to chair the debates. And so I've been invited to some debates that are intra. So far, I've only done intra right. We're going to do some intra left ones. But it was really fascinating to hear the questions that were put forward to all conservatives, right, at certain conservative organizations, and the the differences of opinion in that room. And there were some young conservatives who were saying things that I could go up to them and say, you know, there are a lot of people in the Democratic Socialists of America who agree with you on that point and are making the same argument. So are those people going to, in the realignment, going to come together? <laughs> you know, things about just not being able to afford housing mm-hmm. in where, where you work, right? Like, a lot mm-hmm. of people care about that, but that's not the thing that is getting the the headline. And so, mm-hmm. you know, what yeah. do people actually care about on on both sides and how will this line up in the future? Because it can't stay as it is, or if it does, it's going to suck. So I hope it mm-hmm. doesn't stay as it is. Yeah. yeah it's going to be really interesting. Uh, well, you know, there's, there's one aspect to it. Like we're living in a geritocracy now. Like when are the boomers going to get off the pot because they keep on shitting all over us, you know, kind of thing. And, and that's everything from the politics, like our national politics to our housing prices, you know, like they, they bought mm-hmm. up all the homes and now the new families can't afford to, to live in these nice places anymore. You know, it's just like the, the whole economy is really straining. There's a lot of different levels to this, but like a, a realignment where, one aspect is just like when when is that last generation, the ruling generation who's been there and they've been there since the 90s. So this whole Internet thing has come, you know, and, you know, changed and developed, you know, a lot of different a, a huge mass of people have a totally different way of looking at the world than our ruling class who doesn't seem to be. I mean, they're literally falling mm-hmm. apart before our eyes and the system itself is showing us something about itself through just like these bumbling idiots. Yeah, it's, I mean, props to Mitt Romney, who, you know, I didn't think I was gonna say that where he just said the other day, like, you know what, if I'm I'm in another term, I'm, yeah, like, Hmm. yay, like, this is why I say, like, political realignment, people I used to rail against, I'm now like, yeah, bring it on. That guy, I admire him now in this moment in time. Tomorrow may be different, things are changing fast, but... Yeah. But will more people do that? And uh, I don't know what's going on in Utah. The the governor of Utah actually spoke at the Braver Angels convention, which I was at in July, and was talking about, um, oh, I I don't remember what the the thing is called, like disagree better or something. It was like, he's a Republican, but he and his um, Democratic, you know, rival did an ad together about how maybe they're we can find common ground. Like, I don't know where that's going to go, but it's just an interesting little spark. And what's really interesting is in his keynote speech, the topic he brought up to talk about was gender. And you could have heard a pin drop in that auditorium when he was giving that speech, when he brought it up, it's supposed to be 50, 50, they call it reds and blues. Um, The organization skews blue i think this is more of like a blue democrat whatever they say blue interest the depolarization stuff um but they 
the, the, the audience was, was set to be 50, 50. And mm -hmm. so despite that, I'm sitting there thinking like, are, are the, are the reds just, they're so terrified to speak. They're not going to applaud. And the blues are sitting there seething because the governor's talking about this gender stuff, but he brought it up as like, Hey, we're doing this in Utah. We're making it work. And I don't know enough about the details to comment on his policy, okay. but, but it was just a really, it made me curious. You know, I want to learn about maybe there's something constructive there that can be emulated. Um, yeah. Yeah. Here I'm being an optimist and Benjamin's all like, what are we going to do with the gerontocracy? I don't mean oh, to well, say. Oh, yeah. I mean, gender. I mean, that's, that's a problem. So. Yeah. I mean, either either it's child abuse. I'm sorry to, to go there. I've said this tons of mm -hmm. times on my show, but it's either child abuse to transition a kid or it's child abuse not to transition a kid. It right. can't be both. It can't mm -hmm. be both. So at the bottom of this gender topic is that question. And that cannot be. Those are mutually exclusive yeah. outcomes. They're mutually exclusive outcomes. It's interesting to think about, like, I think there are very similar values in play on both sides of that question. And maybe that's one of the ways to have a better conversation about it across the political divide is like, okay, um, you know, the value of protecting children is activated on both sides. It just means completely different things. And I, I really think probably the most important thing that needs to be restored to have better conversations about anything and that includes gender is this basic like intent matters and good faith really helps <laughs> presuming yeah. good faith really helps and without it there's not a way out but it's like okay i was at this um very small conference in rural finland a couple of months ago that was people who disagree about how to work with gender questioning kids researchers and clinicians um and some of the some of the people who were pro transitioning kids, they would say pro gender affirmation, expressed surprise to find people who thought that transitioning kids was not not a good thing, but who seemed to really care about those kids. It was like they had been telling themselves that if you oppose transition, you hate the kids. We hear this all the time in, you know, among Democrats in the US. Mm -hmm. It is portrayed the conflict is portrayed as about something else. If we could be yeah. honest about what the actual conflict was, I don't know how to do that. It would have to be better. And it's, it's I mean, it's very hard when, um, when it comes to gender in particular, I think something that I've written about a lot is just like kind of the patterns of phobia indoctrination within um, progressive spaces and especially within like trans communities around this issue where organizations like the ACLU, people like, you know, the president's press secretary, like, will all reinforce this message of the community being under attack. And the reality is really much less terrifying. Like, there are people who want to say, no, you can't get these medical procedures that you really want, that you believe are, you know, life enhancing or maybe even life saving. And that this isn't the same thing as the calls about transgenocide and trans people are under attack and people are denying our right to exist. Mm -hmm. There has to be a way back from that kind of hyperbole. And it probably has to start with the organizations that say that they care about this population the most to say it's not responsible to inflate the threat and lie to them for purposes of political expediency. Mm -hmm. Those kind of histrionics are so intimidating. And I agree yeah. with you, Eliza, that 
yeah, we have to come back to these fundamental values and and norms, right? The norm that yes, actually intent does matter. And when someone comes in and says intent doesn't matter, your people are like, whoa, okay, this person's like radiating, like coming back to the nervous system, they're radiating like oh, yeah. and your nervous system's yeah. picking it up and you're like backing away. And now that we're more like, hang on, you know, the normies are noticing things and <laughs> saying this doesn't seem right. And we have more people behind us. Yeah. It's going to get easier to speak up. We're also, unfortunately, going to see more harm being done. Just the way people talk about Jazz Jennings now is mm -hmm. very different, right? That's shifting. More people are willing to say, like, I'm sorry, what? We've been uh, televising child abuse for, like, 10 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And at first, you just think, oh, it, it must be okay because, like, I must be missing something. People yeah. couldn't be doing this horrible thing. So there's going to be you know, casualties along the way until people realize that. But I think eventually it's just going to, you're going to have to be able to see this because more people are going to be saying it. The discussion is going to be harder to miss. I totally understand now why this is such a niche that people are, wouldn't even believe that a person could mm -hmm. be concerned about child transitions because they care about children. Cause we just live yeah. in this very, very strange internet bubble age that we have no wisdom about living in and we don't even know what we're missing until you know some of us have been in here too long and we started to say like hang on a second and we think about it too much um yep. you know it's like what do you do you run an online something or other like explain this world to me and you know my i like uh, okay this story sort of illustrates that my family yeah. is like you're talking about this gender stuff like okay like you're kind of weird we're just gonna let you talk and you real like I realized later that that's what they were doing. I mean, you always kind of know that people might be doing that to you. But I got confirmation when my sister is filling out a application to go to PA school, physician's assistant school. Okay. She's a nurse, yeah. And uh, she's filling it out, and she has the drop down where she has to pick her pronouns and like Z, Zem, whatever the weird neo pronouns are there too. And she's yeah. I happened to be sitting there in the room with her at the time. We were both at my mom's house at the time, and. She looks at me and she's like, I thought you were making that up. Come see my screen. And I'm like, I told you. Hmm. People are going to see it and they're going to see the harms being done. And so to your question, Benjamin, it's either immoral to do A or it's immoral not to do A, transition kids. Reality is going to rear its ugly face. Unfortunately, more and more people are going to see it and it's going to yeah. become obvious, I think. And they're going to get to hang on to their value of protecting kids, but what it means to protect kids is going to shift. That's right. Yeah. How how do you think that how how does that play out? How how do you how do you uh, suddenly go from championing saving kids to oh I was cutting off their genitals the whole time and that wasn't actually good? And how do you pivot? Uh, you probably skip that step. You probably so skip that I was supporting a bad thing step, and you okay. say I was protecting kids the whole time, yeah. but what it. Yeah, I mean, we saw some of this this week. Okay, we saw maybe the legal liability side of what the kind of rollback of this might look like this week because, so the Washington University Transgender Center at St. Louis Children's Hospital. So this is the center that transitions kids that Jamie Reed blew the whistle on earlier this year. Mm -hmm. There's a new law in Missouri that says that you can't start new patients under the age of 18 on puberty blockers, cross sex hormones, or surgeries. There's a grandfather clause for kids who are already being experimented on this way. Questionable. Um, and then they extended the statute of limitations for patients who underwent child transition to sue, I think by 15 years. Um, 
So the Transgender Center went, announced that they would be going further than they needed to in order to comply with the law, which is that their doctors would not be administering puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, or performing surgeries. I don't think they mentioned the surgeries because they were officially not doing them, although they were doing them. Um, and they said, you know, the liability is really unsustainable. This is kind of what it's probably going to look like at first is this. Our hands are tied. We can't, we, I mean, but we still care about these kids and we're still going to do everything we can to help you with. Yeah. I mean, they're redef like they're saying they're still going to support trans kids and it no longer involves these other things. I think for, hmm. I think for a medical organization, it's, there's an interesting and public cognitive dissonance between the statements that that center has made about how essential the care is and patients don't regret it and it's not harming anybody and we think that, that there's unsustain, unsustainable liability associated with patients being able to like sue us 15 years into the future with how happy they are with their treatment. Um, and that that kind of cognitive dissonance is not going to be resolved publicly. Um, but I think that's how organizations walk back. And I think the way that individuals are going to do it is that they are going to, hmm. they're going to keep using the same words for different things. So we, we can see this with gender affirming care, that it's a concept that's increasingly expansive. Um, in front of the Oregon State Legislature earlier this year, um, I can't remember if it was one of the legislators or if it was someone they called as an expert witness, I think it was a legislator, was talking about gender affirming care as being all of these completely non-controversial things, like telling a cisgender girl that it's okay to wear a dress. And you see that from activists where they're like, you know, if you dye your roots, that's gender affirming care. And if you like take hormone replacement and menopause, like that's gender affirming care. Hmm. I think that they are trying to expand the category of what gender affirming care means right now to defend the controversial parts by drawing attention to the uncontroversial parts. But in the future, it's possible that they could you know, jettison the controversial parts and then pretend that that category had kind of stayed the same throughout time and they had supported gender affirming care the whole time. And gender affirming care just means that we tell kids it's okay to be whoever you are and that we don't do anything medical. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. The, the, it's going to be interesting to see if that'll ever make its way into the academy. Because that's where a lot of these ideas come from, or like this yeah. this mind virus, or just I guess not mind mm -hmm. virus. That's a negative way of saying it. just like this um, this castle made out it of clouds. Mind virus. Well, yeah. Well, all right. I have to admit, I agree with your predictions, Eliza. Um, and if I didn't, I would trust you because you know this stuff like better than anybody. Um, so, but what's what what would an alternate future look like? Like if that doesn't happen, because um, yeah. because it does seem like. Well, like I believe that they'll find a way to cover and not pay the penalty, but it's it's so egregious that it's also possible to think like maybe there is a big lawsuit or something, yeah. or maybe you know we we could end up seeing that. No, I, I definitely think it's possible that we see big lawsuits and just, face, losing face and status and like is there a reaction? I like, just I wonder how many people will really lose face though. Yeah, I mean I agree. Um, like, I don't think that there's really going to be a kind of a public reckoning or a mass accounting for what happened, even if there are less, like, it'll be, there were some bad actors, there were some people who didn't, we can kind of see this right. with the people now who are still generally affirming 
have transitioned a lot of kids and they're like, you know, some of our colleagues are really irresponsible about this, but also we still know how to do this. Will they, will those people be sacrificed perhaps? Cause these people, I mean, they're just out to preserve their status in some cases, at least some of them are think they're doing good. Right. Like I really believe some of yeah. them sincerely believe that, but there's enough people who are probably writing this for status. who could throw someone else under the bus, you know, just spitballing here. Yeah, they could. I, I don't know. We'll have to see. Yeah, I'm just... I just, I think that as the kind of taboo of talking about it gets broken, and as the language restrictions that I think have made it so hard to talk about, because you never know what you can say without getting into trouble, you never know what you can say without, you know, paying a very high social price. As that gets broken by, in particular, like, conservatives who are willing to use just absolutely plain language, it's going to be very hard for this to stay, to continue the way that it has. It really required this kind of, it required this kind of subterfuge, I mean, to be honest. What do you mean subterfuge? In what direction? I think it, I think gender affirming care and the changes that have been made around sex versus gender identity in the law have required people, the general public, not to understand what's going on. And there have been, I mean, that Denton's lobbying guide was very explicit about this. It was like, it's best to rush legislation through before people understand it. It's good to like not attract media scrutiny. It's good to pair yourself with popular causes like gay marriage. This really re required things happening behind closed doors and discouraging people from understanding and punishing people who tried to like drag what was happening into the light. And as that, you know, now that the lights are on, that has to change things. Another casualty of this, obviously, is trust in institutions yes. for this to have happened, which is yeah. also huge, right? Yes. I mean, even putting aside all the uh, harm done to children, um, this is another huge cost. So, and that scares me a lot, right? Um, what's, what are we going to get wrong in the future? Because now we're just like, well, I don't, I don't trust any of those experts who right. did that. You know, the modern world is, is pretty hard to make sense of. You want to be able to believe that the professional associations are acting in good faith. And I think that's really been yeah, shaken for a lot of people. And this has been a really people. clear demonstration of we can't trust. Yeah. Yeah. We can't Not to mention something else either. that I can't talk about without getting off of. Oh yeah, <laughs> you got a little. Uh, you had yeah. a little break from YouTube. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, because I was just like, yeah. "Whoa, why? Why did? Why did these professional organizations all act in this one way? And why did they do this thing that didn't turn out to be as good as they said, and then deleterious to our economy yeah, to so many should, people's? We should talk about it. But you can't talk about that. But like, talk about damage to the trust and credibility of institutions. Talk about that's yeah. another vector of realignment. Like, who are the experts? Who are yeah, the aristocracy? Who are the thought leaders? And I think on the subject that shouldn't, that shouldn't be named, um, it's just it's a very similar dynamic, and it's one that I was especially familiar with coming from like the realm of public health, where it's like you have this kind of virtuous manipulation on the part of authorities who are not like, here's what we know and here's what we don't know. But they're like, what do we need to tell people in order them, for them to do the thing that we have decided that they should do? Mm -hmm. And that there are situations in which 
<laughs> especially a situation in which what people know and don't know is massive, what people don't know is massive and where things are changing very fast, where that is an incredibly risky thing to do from an institutional trust and like what's good for the public perspective. And and the institutions people. go all in on this thing. Like California yeah. is going all in on abducting children from other right. states and castrating them, and and, and mutilating them. Like it, it's all in on yeah. that because you can't you can't and, not go all in on that. Yeah, yeah, and and that's one of the main reasons that I don't think that there will be a real public accounting. I think that if it ends, it will end pretty quietly, is because so many people in so many positions of power in the media in you know, state and federal government, you know, the presidential administration have been all in on this and they will never be able to face what they supported. Yeah. So there are so many people who have authority, you know, influence and authority who want this thing to sink like a stone when it sinks. And what else is it going to take right. down? You don't well, we don't know what the next challenge will be. You know, we didn't see the thing that shouldn't be named coming. Well, some people did. Um, but something where we need specialized knowledge and yeah. that specialized knowledge might direct us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise be inclined to do and goes against maybe some other values, trade-offs. And to convince someone to make a trade-off over something they value you have to trust that person. Yeah. So, you know, the 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 people who felt one way about a public health choice were often people who were involved in making those decisions. And the people who lost agency or were told to go against what their own choice would have been. Yeah. They that's a that comes at a cost, whatever the issue is, that comes at a cost. And you really have to have a relationship of trust and feel like your concerns are being heard. And we're such a big society. This is all happening yeah. at the national level. Nothing is local. Well, I mean, everything is local, but nothing is talked about locally. We all it all filters down from, you know, what we're watching on our respective cable news or not even cable mm -hmm. news, our respective media bubbles. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, um, people. Because, you know, they, my my family and friends don't think, well, maybe they do, and they're going to tell me, like, actually, we've decided that you're a bad conservative. Uh, yeah. Like, I don't know. Call me whatever you want to call me. Like, I'm a conservative socialist or something. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I don't care. But, um, you know, they'll... They'll they'll be surprised. They'll, they'll, they'll listen to me politely about the things that I say, and they, uh, they haven't... They're the, obviously the ones who haven't canceled me because they're all gone. They're not talking to me. But yeah. you realize how much this isn't a thing that we're working out amongst ourselves with relationships with other people around us. Our voices, our dissenting opinions don't matter because everyone's just absorbing from their filter bubble what they're supposed to think. And I think that's a really fundamental problem, you know, just for, for human life to not be able to affect your community and to be brushed off and to not feel like you have a, a voice. That's a, yeah. important in this. Speaking of voices, where can yes. people find yours? Well, I'm a third factor, thirdfactor.org. Got a podcast. It's on all the major platforms now, third factor. And uh, at third factor mag on 
Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And what's, uh, what are you focusing on, I guess, this season or this, like, I guess, chunk yeah. of time? Um, we are diving into belonging and we have a issue coming out trying to figure out how to live healthily with this stimulability, this sensitivity, because it can get hijacked in ways very much like mm. what we have been talking mm -hmm. about and healthy nonconformity and how to be the weird one. Like we were discussing all that stuff. That's that's what we're talking about. That sounds good. Um, alias yeah. Eliza. Yes, you can find me on Substack at Eliza Mondegreen at Substack.com and on Twitter. The same. Yeah. And what are you focusing yeah. on this season for the fall? Um, Do you have a I, roadmap? What I've been reading lately is I've been really interested in like the history of the way that people experience their bodies across time and how different it is from the way that we experience their bodies now, which seems hmm. second nature to us. And I'm, I'm not really sure where that's going, but I just kind of feel like every couple of months I pick up a different lead and there's always something. So we'll see. Hmm. Embodiment. Yeah. What are your embodiment goals? We already discussed this. <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah. To be a giga chad. Oh, really? You? No, we discussed this. Oh, wait. Oh, you can see it. You? Being yeah. a jig, jag jig jag Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you very, uh, thank you very much, both of you, for joining me and having this cross pollination. Uh, you guys do wonderful work, and it was great to chill. Yeah, it was really nice to see you guys. Yeah. Thanks you both. It was a lot of fun. There we go.